for over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night, no matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale, even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Potsy of the People. On this episode, we have the news with me, Brittany, Clint, and Sam, as usual. And then we have Andre Holland, the incredible actor that you already know from Moonlight. And he has a new movie out called High Flying Bird. In a way, you know, I think that all the projects that I do, particularly this one, come out of question that I'm asking myself or something that I'm dealing with for myself. The message this week, I'm just going to read, and I reference it a little bit in the interview with him, uh, but there's a speech that his character gives in the middle of the movie, and I love, and it's called The Mango Season. You need to watch the whole film to understand like how it fits into the narrative, but I'm just going to read it because this has been, like, when I saw it, I loved it, and when I hear it every time, I love it. His character says, Gavin had shot up to 6-6, a mango season they called it. All you need is a mango season and everything will change. And it did. Everybody was coming down there to see him play. I guess this is the part where y'all expect me to say that I was jealous. Oh, I was, but not at him. I couldn't be jealous of that fool. No, I was jealous of the cats that got to play him. Gavin loved, loved this game. He was thankful to God for his height, his talent, and then he lost all that. He lost that love and then he left the game, lost his life. Y'all don't lose that love, all right? Even if your mango season ain't come, won't come, past. Hold on to that love. It'll get you through. And I love the idea of a mango season, that we often have a mango season in our life. And in our mango season, we like learn what love feels like. And we got to hold that. We got to keep that feeling for as long as we possibly can, because it allows us to do so much of the work of finding our gift and finding our magic every day. I love a good mango season. Let's go. Hey, y'all. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Miss Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. And this is Clint Smith at Clint Smith the Third. Aye, aye, aye. And this is DeRay at D-R-A-Y on Twitter. So before we get anything started, I want to make sure that we send out thoughts and prayers, love and uh, strength to the families of the victims of the plane crash um, on Ethiopia Airlines this week. Uh, Incredibly tragic. I know that this particular airplane has had two crashes in a very short amount of time. Airplane travel has, of course, become much more safe over the past few decades. But most certainly this is the time of great tragedy for anybody who was related to those folks that were flying yeah, I, I, just to echo that sentiment, can't imagine what the families of those folks must be experiencing. There has been media coverage around the plane crash, and to the extent that I have seen, it has been relatively thoughtful. But it is important to note the way that sort of public mourning manifests or don't doesn't manifest itself when certain people die and when others don't. You know, I think uh, Ethiopian Airlines plane crash that kills mostly people, I believe, from Ethiopia. And, and from the continent of Africa, I think it's worth sitting in grief for a little bit. And then almost 200 people lost their lives. And, and it is getting coverage, but the way that the sort of public reckoning with it seems to not take place in the same way that it would had a plane full of predominantly white people died. Just always something to be mindful of. And, you know, one of the first ways the news came across was like, and there were Americans on the plane, is if the only reason that we would care was because Americans were on the plane. It's like, we should actually care because people died in general, and so many people died. The other thing, and Brittany, this is sort of just like piggybacking on what you said, it was reported in the Daily Beast that no new model of a jet has recorded two fatal accidents in its first year until this Boeing 737 MAX 8. So there really is a question about like why we even fly. Like Something is off with this jet. So I hope that Boeing is doing something to take uh, action so that there are no more jet fatalities with this specific jet because clearly something is wrong. Uh, so, you know, my news today is about artificial intelligence, uh, and it's actually a two-part news because these are both related to artificial intelligence. Uh, and the first has to do with the Department of Defense, which recently developed a AI weapon system 
that apparently is sort of one of the most sophisticated weapon systems at targeting people. And it's forced them to clarify that their existing policy on when and how artificial intelligence systems can kill people or use force uh, is still in effect. And that policy is simply that uh, any decision about using lethal force that is done by a drone or other weapon system that is uh, using artificial intelligence uh, needs to have uh, people somewhere in that process who have the power uh, to make the final decision about whether to use force. So that's sort of the official U.S. policy on the use of artificial intelligence. But that is now becoming uh, a little bit more tenuous because of the development of weapon systems that are just able to target uh, people and objects at a rate that's much faster than what a human can do. So that like exists. It's actually going into operation. Uh, and my second piece of news that's related to this is a study um, that actually looks at artificial intelligence systems uh, and how they are discriminating with regard to race for driverless cars. This is a study from the Georgia Institute of Technology uh, that looked at automated vehicles and how well they detect uh, pedestrians based on the lightness or darkness of their skin tone. Uh, and what they were able to show in sort of running thousands of uh, images uh, of different uh, people and skin tones, uh, they were able to find that actually this system that is supposed to be guiding driverless cars correctly detected the presence of people who were light-skinned at a higher rate, uh, on average about 5% more often than detecting people who had darker skin. And what that means in real life is that if you have driverless cars using the system, uh, that you're more likely to be hit by those cars if you have a darker skin tone. Both of these uh, have implications for not only sort of the battlefield, but also just our everyday lives. And I think that you know, as AI continues to be used more and more in every aspect of our lives, the way in which that shows up in the way in which that may actually be implemented in discriminatory ways or have discriminatory implications uh, needs to be taken into consideration on the front end uh, before these things become more widespread. You know, I know that we've talked about the meeting that several of us had with Facebook. Gosh, was that last year, DeRay? It feels like forever ago, but yeah, it was just last year. It was just last year. And we asked very pointed and specific questions about everything from white supremacy online to how to tackle fake news and the meddling that occurred with uh, our voting process in 2016. And the answer that we received most fundamentally was like, the machines will take care of it. The algorithms will figure it out. And this is just another piece of, frankly, the mounting evidence that shows us that the algorithms are problematic too. That if the math is also biased, that that's actually not a solution to fight bias. It's not a solution to fight injustice or white supremacy. And I know that we've talked about this over and over and over again, but we really, really cannot emphasize enough how important diversity, inclusion, equity, and anti-bias work, not just non-biased work, but anti-biased work in the sciences and in the research field is critically important. I'm brought back to one of the kind of most egregious and unsettling versions of this. And that was a few years ago when Google Photos came into the fore. And, and I remember the application mistakenly labeled photos of black people as gorillas. And Obviously, being labeled a, a gorilla is, is tied to like a, a long history of dehumanization and caricature to make black people seem inherently inferior. And, and, and that, you, that you have this huge application that was released and, and couldn't tell the difference between a human being and a gorilla was, was unsettling and, is, again, re, sort of reflective of, of a much larger problem. So there's no room for error. Like these cars should not be put on the road and such technology should not be implemented and put out into the world until that margin of error is decreased to the most finite point that it can be. I think what I'm struck by is just how uh, how pervasive AI is in ways that we don't even that don't hit the public conversation ever. So there's a Washington Post article that is called "Wanted: The Perfect Babysitter Must Pass AI Scam for Respect and Attitude." The author Drew Harwell is writing about this company uh, called Predictum. That's an online service that uses advanced AI to assess a babysitter's personality. And it aims its scanner at one candidate's thousands of Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram posts. And what it does is that it offers like a risk rating for the person based on their like what they post and the words they use that uh, gives them like a, a score of being a drug abuser, for instance, or bullying or being disrespectful. 
and it's all predicated on like the words and and like the quote toxic behavior that they're searching for. And as you can imagine, there are already fears that this is like gonna just reproduce the biases that people who use language that's in group language that might be slang. You might say, "Oh, that's dope," and the AI might think that you do dope, and like that's not actually helpful. So, trying to think about like all the ways that you know we often take think about AI and criminal justice in in some of the big ways, like the court system, stuff like that. And Sam, I think you bringing it up with like the self-driving cars, like I didn't even think about the self-driving car not seeing people of color. And I certainly didn't think about like a babysitter AI potentially being rolled out to screen babysitters across the country. And like you really have no recourse if the algorithm says that you're dangerous, you're sort of screwed. It's not like you would even ever know as the babysitter, people just wouldn't be hiring you. And like this could actually just reproduce a set of biased values. And again, you wouldn't even know. I didn't know until prepping for this article. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned, there's more to come. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. Ask Sherwin-Williams during the March Spring Sale, March 15th through the 25th, and get 35% off paints and stains with prices starting at $28.92. That means 35% off our most popular color family, blue. Psychologists have found it to be soothing and relaxing, which makes it especially great for bedrooms and bathrooms. And of course, get 35% off all of our other colors. Shop the sale online or visit your neighborhood Sherwin-Williams store. Click the banner to learn more. Retail sales only. Some exclusions apply. See store for details. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. With BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash people today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. So I think that you all were around last week on the internet when we all saw Hell Freeze Over. The very conservative columnist David Brooks of the New York Times released a column entitled The Case for Reparations. Of course, the name is reminiscent of the article four or five years ago in The Atlantic by ta Coates that was also called A Case for Reparations. In that original article by Coates, he laid out in painstaking detail, both through personal narrative, um, through statistical analysis, analysis and through historical lens why African-American descendants of enslaved people are indeed owed reparations in this country. And we've talked about it plenty of times on this podcast. When you look at the undergirding of the economic system, of politics, of society in America, uh, that indeed it is true that it was built on the free and forced labor of enslaved Africans. And it is still continuing to reap benefits for certain people and reap detriment for others. And who would have thought that David Brooks 
would indeed cite that article and say, five years ago, I read this thing and I was dubious at best. But through a number of experiences, personal reckonings of my own, and some real study and thought on this, I do agree that reparations are owed to African-American people. So in the online discussion of that, I found myself reminding our readership and our listenership of something we talk about often, that if you are a person that holds a privileged identity, it is your responsibility if you desire to be an accomplice or a co-conspirator, even more than an ally, it is your responsibility to help explain and build a bridge for folks who are just like you. So white people need to go talk to white people. Men need to go talk to men. Cis folks need to talk to cis folks. Wealthy people need to talk to wealthy people, etc. And this was a reminder of that because so many people will be talking about reparations that would never have read Coates' article, that never heard of or saw Coates' article, and would not have known of Coates' article had David Brooks not cited him. Uh, and so I was one of many people who put Coates' article back up on the internet to remind people that this conversation has been going on for decades, but most recently has been happening because of a black author. And as that conversation was going on, a researcher uh, hit us up and said, hey, we actually did a study on this that proved that what you've been saying all this time is true, that indeed white people do listen to white people differently than they listen to black people. In the study, they had a white person, a black person, and an anonymous person who it turns out the white subjects assumed were black. They had them try to convince the, the white subjects to support Black Lives matter. And white subjects were more likely to support Black Lives Matter if they assumed that the appeal was coming from a white person. When the appeal was coming from a black person, they were not only less likely to support Black Lives Matter as a movement, but they were also more likely to believe that the black explainer was more racist than the white explainer. So in some ways, it was a water is wet study. In some ways, it's very illuminating. Um, But I know as much as people like quantitative data with their qualitative data, I wanted to bring that study here. Yeah, so I have a a couple thoughts. One, I do want to acknowledge, not necessarily give props, but like, I do want to acknowledge that David Brooks is a incredibly public figure and has previously come out against reparations very publicly and has now walked that back. And I don't say that to say like, yeah, David Brooks, you're the man. I say it because I do recognize that in people who who think out loud and think in public and and write and speak and do all those things, that it is rare for people who have once held a specific position to then, even if it's, you know, days later, weeks later, years later, in this case, to, to sort of walk that position back and say, I was wrong. I've learned some things. I've thought about some things. I've had some experiences that make me believe that the thing that I used to believe is not true anymore. And and Ta-Nehisi's article, uh, he even talks about how previously he didn't believe in reparations and only in, over the course of years doing this research did he come to, to believe that. So I, So I say that because I do think it is important to give credit where credit is due. Second, I also think it is remarkable that we are having a national conversation about reparations in the way that we are. You know, we have presidential candidates being asked, like, what their stance is on reparations. To be clear, st- scholars have been studying this for, for many years. Derek Hamilton, Sandy Darity, many, many people, activists have been talking about this in many spaces for many years. And now we're in a moment where the Speaker of the House has endorsed H.R. 40, which is a commission to study the issue of reparations and whether or not that is necessary and what harm has been done to the black community and how amends can be made. And I I think people of good faith can have different conceptions of what the best way to move forward in a, through a policy lens is for reparations. But I do think it is worth saying it is a good thing and it is incredible that we are in a position where it is at the forefront of our discourse in the way that it is. Yeah, building on that point, Clint, I mean, this may be the most prominent uh, conversation about reparations uh, that we're having as a nation since like the 1870s, right? This is huge. That wouldn't be possible without the space that was created by the protests, by the conversation about police violence, about racial injustice in, in so many aspects of society that, you know, when you look back at sort of when the sea change really took place. You look at the data, you look at the polling data, like it's, this took place in 2014, right? That's when you see racial attitudes shift significantly in favor of 
a more progressive stance on race. Um, you see that happening for everybody who is not a Republican. So Republicans have sort of stayed where they are, maybe even gotten a little bit worse. But, you know, overall, if you look what's happening across the country, you know, people have better attitudes on race. They're more open to acknowledging and addressing uh, racial inequity now than at any other point since the civil rights movement. We often miss that because uh, our politics and our political system uh, responds to a different set of incentives, uh, favors particular groups and particular perspectives. You see structures like the Electoral College and others that will take a country that is you know, actually moving left and actually give you a result that is a president that is far to the right on these issues. But, you know, overall, what's happening as a nation, I think is positive. And, and I'm hopeful that these conversations will get a little bit more concrete. We'll start to see, you know, we've seen some proposals, for example, from Cory Booker with the baby bonds. We've seen from Elizabeth Warren on housing and down payment assistance in communities that have uh, been redlined. So we're, we're starting to see some proposals to address the legacy of racism, of segregation and, and slavery. And, I, and I'm hopeful that that those conversations will continue, that more candidates will come out and support. And some of the candidates who haven't supported to date uh, might have, have to change their minds as well, because uh, obviously this is something that people are open to now in a way that we haven't seen before. The only thing I'd add is that with the David Brooks piece, the thing that I struggle with, and I, I you struggle intentionally, is that one of the reasons that Brooks highlights that he came around is because uh, he had personal experiences. And while I think that is interesting and important, it, it sort of is a feature of dominant culture that the only time you start to believe people is when you personally experience the thing. So it's like, he's like, I was around poor people. And it's like, well, that is interesting and great. The thing, though, is that, like, we should think that putting kids in cages is bad, whether you, like, saw the kids in cages or not. Like, there are a host of things that I value should actually, like, help us, like, be on the side of uh, whether or not we personally have met with people. And the reason that the idea that the only time that you come around is when you have had a personal experience is that that actually very quickly becomes some sort of voyeurism and exploitation. If, like, you need to go on a poverty tour to believe that poverty is real, you need to go on, like, a redlining tour to believe that, like, redlining actually happened. So, like, while I agree with you, Clint, it is a good thing that Brooks came around I'm mindful of the texture of like how that happened. The second is to Brittany, to the study, which is a fascinating study. It's something that we've known for a long time, right? Which is why you called it a water is wet study. It also is interesting to think about what the implications are. And I don't know if, you know, we did this a long time ago. Sam, one of your pieces of news, like episode 10 or whatever, was about how support for public policy actually decreases as people of color support it. And like, that's sort of an interesting thing to look at in this light that like, people of color are sort of expected to support racial justice things, and are discounted when they do support them, which is what this study says, the discounted piece, I'm adding the expected to support, and that people actually just believe dominant culture people about issues around justice. And what's interesting in this study is that they explicitly use issues of police brutality like that is the issue and show that like white people think that people of color are racist and anonymous people are racist if they don't know the race uh, but they believe uh, white people that they're like sort of objective and unbiased when they offer their opinion which has fascinating implications for like how we actually build coalition it is a reminder that in this moment it's good that there's so many white people actually ready to do work or willing to be ready to do work or whatever that is uh, because as we work to dismantle white supremacy, they will be important. I'll just close with two really important nuances. One, as DeRay just referenced, you know, I talk about those elements of white dominant culture all the time. One of them is the worship of the written word, that if you haven't seen it written down and if it doesn't have numbers attached to it, that it's not believable. And if, you know, a piece like Brooks's is the first time that you ever considered reparations because the messenger was different, sit with that and interrogate why that's true for you. The other thing to remember is that reparations can and we can have this conversation with a lot of nuance about exactly how it's delivered. Here's why. There is certainly monetary reparations owed to the people who are direct descendants of enslaved people because it was indeed their labor that built this country. But there are also so many ways in which racial justice and the legacy of racial injustice manifests today, whether you are a black person descended of slaves or you are an immigrant from the Caribbean or you're Afro-Latinx. There are so many ways in which black skin in this country will set you back. And that is deeply connected to a legacy of racism, of slavery, of Jim Crow, etc. 
So for my news this week, I'm thinking a lot about the issue of organ donation and kidney donations. I'm thinking of it because my dad was recently here in D.C. and he was doing some advocacy work on the Hill to get members of Congress to back a number of issues that would help people who are living donors, uh, meaning they donate their organs while they're still alive, and also to help people who are in need of organ transplants and donations. My dad has had two kidney transplants. Uh, he's had chronic kidney disease for a large part of his adult life. And we are so blessed and so fortunate that there were two living donors and he's still with us because of that. And that is unfortunately not the case for so many people. There are 100,000 people in the U.S. who are currently waiting for a kidney donation. Uh, every 10 minutes, another person is added to the national transplant waiting list. That's for organs in, in general. Uh, and 82% of those patients are waiting for a kidney so kidney donations are by far the largest need. Every day, 12 people die while they are waiting for a kidney transplant. And part of what I want to bring this up for and, and to make clear is that some people think that you can only donate your organs um, after you, if you've been killed in a car crash or if something has happened to you, and that is certainly the case. Uh, but you can also donate for so many organs, like a kidney, you can donate while you are alive. And, and that has a, a huge impact on the person. A kidney from a living donor can function anywhere between 12 to 20 years, and a kidney from a deceased donor uh, often functions for 8 to 12 years. And so sometimes a living donor kidney can function for twice as long as uh, a kidney that's coming from someone who's deceased. And there are a lot of misconceptions about organ donation that I think are really important to dismiss. Like I, I remember, you know, hearing that like, oh, if you donate your organs, even after you died, then you can't have an actual funeral or, you know, because your body is all messed up. And, and that is not true. That is not the case. Um, you can have a normal funeral or cremation or whatever you prefer. And there are so many people that can be living donors. People don't know that you can function with just one kidney. Like all you need is one kidney. If you are willing, please consider what it means to be a living donor. You are saving someone's life. You are saving the lives of, of people like my dad. So make sure that you go to registerme.org uh, where you can register to be an organ donor. Make sure you change your driver's license and make sure that you take some time and consider what it means to be a living donor. There are policies in place that make it so that you can take time off of work and people like my family will be so, so grateful for the gift of life that you have given someone. Clint, this was really, really eye-opening for me. I didn't know much about this issue at all. I didn't know that 58% of the U.S. population were registered organ donors. Uh, if you haven't registered yet, you can go to registerme.org uh, and become one. I also didn't know some of the racial demographics of who was impacted by this issue, uh, who was awaiting a transplant. So 58% of patients awaiting life-saving transplants are people of color, 58%. Uh, so this is an issue that disproportionately impacts communities of color. So if, if you can uh, contribute and help out, uh, register yourself at registerme.org. Uh, this is definitely an issue that needs more attention uh, and more action because you know it's unacceptable to have anybody waiting on this list n not knowing whether or not they'll be able to survive. And, and for many people, uh, approximately 8,000 people each year uh, die because the organs that they need are not donated in time. So this is a serious issue, uh, life or death, and you can be part of making a difference. I'm glad that you brought up all of the theories around what can go wrong with kidney donation. I remember turning 16 and getting my driver's license in Missouri. They asked me if I wanted to be an organ donor. I said enthusiastically, yes. And it wasn't until a few weeks later when I was very excitedly showing people my driver's license because I was 16 and I was just excited to have one that someone who was religious that I love very much told me to go get that taken off. And I asked them why and I heard so many of the things that you just talked about that I wouldn't be able to have a proper funeral, and more importantly, that it was going to be a sacrifice of the soul, that the idea of putting one person's organs into another person's body was problematic with the soul. And I just kind of thought to myself, if I've got a working heart that the God we both serve gave me, why wouldn't God want me to use that heart or that kidney or whatever organ that is in life or in death to help save another life? Um, if we all come from the same human fabric anyway, um, as is the religious ideal and belief, then wouldn't this be the way that I can use whatever I've got and whatever God gave me to the betterment of other people? And as I talked to that person, it was clear that they had just never interrogated where they heard that from and why they believed that. And if they even thought that 
was true. I think through the course of that conversation, they started to think differently. I certainly wasn't uh, discouraged um, ultimately from removing that from my driver's license and it's still on there. But ultimately, we have to recognize where some of these ideas about these things come from, really pick them apart and interrogate where they could be coming from and make a decision uh, that can help so many people. There was a study that talked about in 1995, 7% of white patients on the list received a live donor kidney within uh, two years compared to 6.8% of Hispanics and 5.1% of Asians and 3.4% of blacks. So black people in 1995, still the lowest uh, to receive a live donor a kidney. Uh, by 2014, black and Hispanic patients were actually less likely to get a live donor kidney than before. So 11.4% of whites received live donor organs compared to 5.9% of Hispanics, 5.6% of Asians, and just 2.9% of blacks. So it's, it was getting worse. The second thing that I didn't know is about the out-of-pocket cost for donors. I literally had no clue. I don't know. In my mind, it was like, you want to donate you go to the hospital. I didn't know who paid for it. But what research shows is that 53% of living kidney donors had more than $1,000 in out-of-pocket costs, including travel and health care, as well as indirect costs such as lost wages. And 20% had more than $5,000 in out-of-pocket costs. And that's actually one of the reasons why the research suggests that the disparity in race is so great, because the disparity in disposable income is so closely linked to race. And I just hadn't, I didn't know. So... Thanks for bringing this up, Clint. I learned a lot. So my news, the title of it is How Federal Disaster Money Favors the Rich. We've talked a lot about natural disasters. I think the AOC has done a really good job of putting climate change on the national conversation with the Green New Deal. But what this talks about is, is why the disparity in uh, disaster aid actually favors people who already have money. One I didn't even think about is that some of it is literally just a matter of the form. So a lot of the application requirements aren't designed to favor some citizens over others. They're designed to make sure that there's like no fraudulence, but they require a, a computer. They require like long uh, amounts of data or like a lot of data about your past and houses and, and locations and bank accounts and all that stuff that like just you know, if you don't have a computer, you can't fill out the application. So you obviously aren't going to get any of the aid. And like, I hadn't even thought about that. And then NPR did a study on one federal disaster program and found the same disparity. So the program used federal and local money to buy homes that had been flooded or affected by natural disasters and to turn those homes permanently into green space to reduce flood risk, which makes a lot of sense. And the buyouts were voluntary and the homeowner could use the money to go somewhere safe. The buyouts disproportionately went to wider communities. And when they looked at it, it was uh, they looked at about 40,000 property buyouts and found about 85% of them went to white and non-Hispanic people. And like NPR was trying to tease out like why. And again, some of the why they believe is like um, just an access to even apply for these things. And then some of it does appear just to be discrimination, just uh, like good old American discrimination. So was interested and fascinated because I hadn't thought about the way the disproportionate aid was impacted by the choices that people could or could not make to even access the aid. I found myself so frustrated by the reporter essentially saying that the low interest loans that FEMA provides also suffer from this kind of bias, even when you adjust for credit scores. So if a black family or a Latinx family and a white family have the exact same kind of range of credit scores, that the families of color are still less likely to receive the low interest loan or receive it at the same rates um, as white families. And I just continue to find this frustration when we require people of color and other marginalized people to do all of the right things, and they do, and they still suffer from the bias. So we tell people, fix your credit, be financially sound, get a good financial education, education, make wise decisions with your money. And they do. And then a natural disaster hits and they're still left even after all that hard work, suffering from the things that they cannot avoid simply because of the color of their skin. Um, I also think it's really important to recognize here that this is only going to get worse, that with climate change, natural disasters are not going anywhere. And until the bias is actually rooted out of the system, we're not going to see a fix here. It's interesting because NPR initially submitted a FOIA request for these records and they were denied, which tells me that the federal government knew that this bias was going on and they really didn't want anybody to know about it. They eventually sued and won and that's how we were able to get this important data. So the only thing I'll, I'll add to this, you know, I was recently watching uh, on Netflix, the 2000s. So it's like a show about the 2000s. But 
one of the episodes uh, covered Katrina. Uh, and I was shocked. So they had a video of George W. Bush. Uh, this was on September 9th of 2005. So this was like less than two weeks after Katrina. And this is a direct quote from him. He said, the storm didn't discriminate and neither will we in the recovery effort. This goes to what you were saying, Brittany, around you know the fact that the, the government, FEMA itself, uh, has sort of tried to keep this under wraps. Uh, and now sort of we're seeing the data, you know, a, more than a decade after Katrina, years after, uh, a number of other storms have hit, still in the midst of uh, it, what's been going on in Puerto Rico and the recovery there. Uh, and we're seeing the data that confirms what people have been saying for quite some time. People in New Orleans, people in Puerto Rico, people uh, in Houston, uh, about the ways in which the federal government response to these tragedies and these disasters uh, oftentimes is implemented in racially discriminatory ways. And like, this isn't surprising. Like we've talked about how these same practices happen in so many other spheres of society. Uh, but, you know, it's particularly egregious when you're thinking about people who, you know, have sort of the highest need, people who just experienced a disaster, people who desperately need help. Uh, and even still in that context, seeing uh, how the government can respond uh, in discriminatory ways is heartbreaking. And I hope that uh, the next administration takes this issue seriously and makes sure that you know, some of these issues are thought of on the front end, because if we continue just uh, responding and, and compensating people according to the way that it's always been done, we'll continue to have uh, discriminatory results that leave a lot of people behind. Yeah, just to build on that point, Sam, uh, as you all know, I'm from New Orleans, uh, and Hurricane Katrina was my senior year of high school. Our home neighborhood uh, was destroyed, as was so much of the city, and we were in a position where we were fortunate to have family who lived elsewhere who, who we could rely on. And I remember watching as so many people in our community just were, were flailing after the storm. I mean, if you don't have disposable income in the immediate aftermath of a natural disaster, you don't have money to, to get the basic necessities, to find a new apartment, even before you can apply for FEMA or before you can get uh, access to uh, services from the government. Sometimes we fail to understand the extent to which the processes by which we tell people living in poverty or people in need of assistance will just get online and apply for this thing or just go to this office or just print this out. So many people don't have access to a computer. So many people don't have access to the internet. So many people don't uh, have the resources or time to figure out who the person they need to go to and then get there. And also, you know, are they going to bring their kids? Are they going to leave their kids? Do they have the education necessary in order to fill out the forms in the way that's not going to force them to come back? Or in a worst case scenario, that's going to have their application denied even when they are materially deserving of it. And so, you know, I saw so much of that happen in real time with folks that I know and and so many people throughout New Orleans and, and you know, this exists in, in so many different ways with natural disasters across the past decade. But I did not know the extent to which the gap in wealth and income was exacerbated, but it makes sense intuitively uh, because I, I've seen and heard so many of those stories from people back home. That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. Good morning. Maybe it's a brand new day. Experience a different tomorrow with Norwegian Cruise Line. Book today and get 50% off your cruise to Alaska, Europe, and beyond. Plus, everyone can enjoy their vacation with free unlimited open bar, free specialty dining, and more. Visit ncl.com, call your travel advisor, or 1-888-NCL-CRUISE. Offer ends soon. Norwegian Cruise Line. Ships Registry, the Bahamas and USA. Restrictions apply. The rest of my life gonna start today. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night. No matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale, even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great. If you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams. Now celebrating 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams is the originator of everyone's favorite Lux home blanket. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort, as its ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are each made with premium materials. Get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code PODCAST15.
And now my conversation with Andre Holland, who recently starred in the Netflix movie High Flying Bird. Andre Holland, honor to have you on Potsy of the People. Uh, honor is mine. Thank you for having me. Excited to talk about your newest project on Netflix. I will try to have no spoilers about it. But what 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 drew you to this project? Um, well, it's actually a project that I helped to create. What five years ago, I was working on this TV show called The Nick with uh, Steven Soderbergh, and I was at a place in my career and life where I felt um, like I wanted more opportunities than were available to me. Uh, specifically, opportunities that I found to be quality opportunities that you know spoke to myself and my experience. So I started pitching Stephen on some ideas. I had an idea about the Negro Leagues, which I was fascinated by and obsessed with. Through a series of conversations, we sort of came to this place. And how close does this mimic the? There was like a lockout in two, 2011. Yeah. How close does this actually mimic that, or was inspired by that? It, it was definitely inspired by it. Uh, so there were there have been a series of lockouts. I think four uh, five maybe uh, but I know that you know the one in 2011 was was really significant uh, and we definitely referenced that use that kind of as a template for you know building out this story and one of the things that we found as we were researching is that in in 2011 and also in prior lockouts this idea of players starting their own league is something that has come up a number of times mm. and um, you know it seemed like every time it came up and sort of got to the point of like can we do this people came to the table and and agreed and, and put the game back on. So it, was, it wasn't hard for us to sort of imagine a world in which this kind of got pushed a little bit further down the line. I'm always interested when there are actors of color who do these performances that are like deeply about race and identity and how much of that you like carry with you like afterwards, like what that looks like. So I think about, I don't want to give too much away, but I think about the mango speech is mm-hmm. like one where like I watched it and I was like really quiet and like really it was heavy in like its own sort of way. And I'm interested in, like, how much of these things do you, like, stay with you after, like, you're done? It definitely sticks with me. And and in a way, you know, I think that all the projects that I do, particularly this one, come out of a question that I'm asking myself or something that I'm dealing with for myself. And it's funny you talk about the mango speech because, you know, that's a place in the film that some people have said, well, you know, this, this backstory that Ray has feels a little bit, you know, wedged in. But for me, I actually really like that that speech I as well. It. I you know? love it. It's like such a great metaphor. Yeah, because I think also what he's talking about in that speech is trauma from his past. You know, so an experience that he had where he lost someone who was very close to him. Uh, he holds himself accountable for that, and I think because it's something that he hasn't Ray, my character hasn't quite resolved. Uh, I think that is that's a key to his behavior. That's why he's simultaneously really loving and paternal to this young player, Eric Scott. But at the same time, he keeps everybody in his life at a distance. Um, he puts up this facade of being this really smart, well-spoken, uh, clever guy. But there are moments that I, you know, I see and that I feel where he's, he's scrambling and he's lost and he's you know, super vulnerable. And so that's something that I too deal with. Having been born and raised in Alabama, I find myself you know, often wrestling with these ideas of like, what has my past done to me? What kind of behavior has that created in me? How much of that do I carry? Can I separate myself from that? Do I want to separate myself uh, from my past? So in some ways, I think the movie, this character's journey anyway, is about trying to sort of merge these different parts of himself, you know, his past that, you know, where he wasn't an agent, wasn't wearing a a fancy suit and, and putting those pieces together. So I think that yeah, I carry a lot of a lot of who I am into the project and then often carry a lot of who I am, you know, uh, and who those characters are away from every project that I do. I think about this theme of, like, what it means to love a game so much and, like, what it means to, like, willingly walk into a space that, like, in some ways, as the film sort of teases, like, commodifies and, like, turns people into products, but it's, like, all rooted in this, like, love of the game. And there's something about when it becomes like an industry that sort of taints the love of the game. Yeah. Did it change the way you thought about the love of the game and what that does to people, how it functions? Yeah, there's a book called uh, Black Gods of the Asphalt that I came across as we were researching, even prior to researching actually, uh, written by this brilliant brother, Dr. Najee Woodbine. And the book itself is about just that. It's about what the game itself means, uh, particularly to young uh, black boys and girls who find themselves in these you know, urban environments and, and, and sort of flocking to these places for um, healing, really. And uh, he talks about the basketball court being one of the only places where people in those communities in our communities can express real uh, vulnerability, right? And yet we look at the NBA and we look at professional sports or even college sports, you know, and people do 
project onto these black bodies our sort of fantasies about what, you know, what it means to be a, a high-flying bird, right? Without often understanding what the underbelly of that is, what that person's journey is to get to that point, what they're carrying with them, the people who they've had to leave behind, right? So I've learned a lot about that, and I think it's made it very hard for me personally to enjoy sports in the way that I used to, particularly college sports. I grew up a huge college football fan, but now when I go to games, it just feels dirty to me. I went to a game last year in Alabama, and, and you know, to be standing in a stadium of you know, 80-some thousand people, many of whom you know, voted the way they voted and feel the way they feel about people taking knees or, or having opinions politically, and yet at every time out, I hear hip-hop blaring from the sound system and these same people nodding their heads and you know, dancing to Lil John or whatever it is, right, right. you dig? There's a conflict that I haven't quite yet resolved, but that I know feels feels wrong and it feels complicated to me. So in a way, I think that's what the movie is doing is, is just putting the question forward of saying, well, how do, how do we engage with sports? Is there more to the story? Dr. Harry Edwards, who, who makes an appearance at the end of the film, also helped educate me on uh, the history of this transaction, you know, that uh, the sociology of sport is something that he's been dealing with for a very long time. And so he's, he's opened my eyes to a lot of things. And I hope that people who see the movie will then go and engage with his work as well and, and sort of unpick some of these things. Uh, one of your lines in the film is, quote, put the control in the hands of those behind the ball instead of those up in the skybox. Like you said before, like when there have been attempts to change the configuration of ownership, like that has sort of been a struggle. Do you have any hope that something might happen to change the NBA to, or any professional sports to make it like more equitable, more just, considering that like without black bodies, like the industry doesn't exist, you know, it comes to a grinding halt? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in all fairness, I think the NBA, of all the professional sports, the NBA has done probably a better job than any of them in terms of giving players more control and allowing those players a platform to express their own ideas and and points of view. But I think that in this movie, the NBA really is just a template for, like, a number of other industries. I mean, you know, the NFL, for example, is something that I think clearly is struggling. (laughs) But even if you look at, like, corporate America, if you look at entertainment, you know, entertainment business, this whole thing started because I felt you know, disempowered in a way, right? I felt like I didn't have a place in the business, you know, unless I was willing to sort of be the thing that people wanted, you know, blackness to be, right? I wanted to play complex parts. And yet there are these series of like negotiations that have to happen in order to get to that point, right? You know, I have hope that a lot of industries will change as a result. Certainly my industry, I think that's very much what like Terrell and I are engaged in right now. We we did this project together, we did Moonlight together, and we have a number of other things that we want to do together. And it's uh-oh, about like, uh-oh, uh-oh. yeah, like okay. you know, building and empowering and in, inviting more people to the table and saying, well, how can we tell our own stories on our own terms without having to answer to people who don't necessarily um, understand or care to understand uh, the complexity of of who we are. One of the things I really loved, and one of the things that frustrates you about a lot of movies and films, is the way that like the totality of black communities get like shown. What I love about this is that there you see like I saw black people that I like know, you know? I'm like, I know her. Mm-hmm. This a lot. I know these kids. Like the kids, you know, I used to be a teacher and I saw those kids in the bat in the gym. Yeah. But like that was that was like just how kid like that was kids, you know? <laughs> and it was yeah. on the first time so I was like, I see black kids like not being like sad and distraught and like, but you see them like really being everything like smart and annoying and like, mm-hmm. like you saw all of that or like, um, what's his name? Jameer? Jim, what's oh, uh, Jamero. Jamero. The the other basketball player. Yes, yeah. his mom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like that type. Of, like, just, we know those moms. I know though. her, <laughs> you know, like I have met her before and yeah. I, I really love the way that like blackness actually got to be like a complex thing mm. in a way that like we don't, I think people try to do it uh, but they sort of overshoot. They like sort of try so hard to run from the stereotype that they create another stereotype. Yeah. And I thought this didn't do that in a way that was really special. So Thank you. I, I appreciate you say saying that. that. I got to say that's, you know, that's down to our writer, Terrell McCraney. I mean, he's, he's a, a brilliant brother and he's interested in all the same things that you and I are interested in, I think. So he uh, all like, praises like to this. him for that. Yeah. Is there anything that you learned about the sport that surprised you? Just curious about, like, you had to, you sat with this content for so long. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Was there anything that you learned in the process that surprised you? Man, there were a lot of things. When you talk to the players, right, my sort of perception of it is that there are these, like, flashy guys who are just out here with too much money and, you know, grown kids, basically. 
But actually what I found is that a lot of these players are, I mean, they know from the time they're very, very young, you know, what the expectation is or what's possible for them athletically. And their lives are often sort of crafted around that gift, you know. So therefore, a lot of them are really, 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 really smart and aware of what's going on, you know. That was something that I was really sensitive to as we were writing the script is that... They weren't the naive sort of... They didn't come off just naive and these like dumb dumb jocks, you know. Uh, Particularly with them being, we're talking about black players. I especially did not want to put that image out there. Um, And it was easy to do because all the players I met weren't like that. They actually were really clever. So that was something that I learned that I really appreciated. And then again, that just the, the Harry Edwards piece of it, you know, that like this idea isn't new. The Colin Kaepernick idea isn't new. Like there's a long history of like athletes sort of being activated in this way. Yeah, the history of it was something that I really was surprised about. I don't want to give away too much for people that haven't seen it, but one of the themes too is identity and sexuality with one of the characters. I'm trying to be like, babe, (laughs) you haven't seen it. Um, So like, why was it important to you as like a feature of this? And then did you get a glimpse or do you have any understanding of like how you think the league would deal with that today? I know when we were working on this, we, uh, Michael Sam, you know, we were talking about in, in the NFL was an, an out an NFL player. He's not and playing right now. Not anymore, no. Yeah. And that was a part of the controversy around it was like how much of that was about his, his being out. So that was something that was in the air when we were writing it. But for me, from a personal standpoint, that character that's spoken about from Ray's past is someone from my own past. Oh, I, you know, I hesitate to say who it is, but someone I was very close to who passed away when I was younger. And uh, our relationship is very much like that relationship mm. between Ray and that character. So it was important to me to put that in there. Also with Terrell, as we as we speak about these things, a lot of what we talk about is like that trauma, man, just like that stuff from the past that keeps finding its way into the present. So that's something I was interested in. It's like, how does that affect this guy today? In terms of the sexuality piece of it, you know, Terrell, I mean, he's always been interested in it. And I, by extension of knowing him, have become more interested in it. So, yeah, I think that's always a part of, often a part of the stuff that he works on. I think about when we experience trauma really early in life, like we're trying mm-hmm. to figure out like what it means. And, and then we have, we often have a moment where we're like, okay, now I know how to talk about it. Now I know how to like process it. What, yeah. Did the film allow you to do that in any way? For sure. For sure. And I think in some ways, when I look back at my career, Everything I do has a bit to do with me trying to work through something when, it, when we were doing Moonlight. And you don't think about it at the time, but when we were doing Moonlight, you know, vulnerability was something that, that I was um, questioning or wrestling with. Second chances, do we deserve them? You know, do I deserve them? You, you dig? And getting to play Kevin, a guy who, you know, made a terrible decision early in his life and then getting to re-encounter this person again and... and, and trying to open his heart and make space for that person to be themselves. You know what I mean? That was really important to me. Also, the Nick, the thing that me and Steven were working on five years ago, you know, when we started talking about High Flying Bird, was about, you know, is this, like, isolated, lonely dude who found himself, you know, being selected as, like, special and put into this situation, surrounded by white people, none of whom wanted him there, and yet he had to, like, navigate and find his way, being, like, you know poor boy from Alabama and then finding myself in these situations, you know, that that my friends didn't get to participate in. Um, I've often felt that isolation and um, that vulnerability that comes with that isolation. So anyway, I said all that to say that I think every project that I work on has something to do with where I am. You you know what I mean? And, And I'm grateful for the art that I get to work that stuff out in front of people. It makes me think of, you know, in organizing, we talk about this notion, especially with young people, that young people often have the experiences before they have the language. Mm, And mm. part of our work is to not penalize them for not having the language, even though they have the experience, right? So, like, what I hope art can do at its best is, like, help people with the language. Like, Mm -hmm. they help people, like, access these things that are like, that is my life. I lived it, you know? The second thing is, like, this notion that, like, uh, what whiteness provides is, like, a psychic freedom. Yeah. When you talk about, like, white kids being able to, like, da-da-da, da-da, mm-hmm. and, like, do whatever. To, and it's, like, you know, growing up, like, we psychic freedom was not one of the things that we had. You know, yeah. like, I think about always being mindful of, like, you know, we had to sleep on the floor when the gunshots got too close. Yeah. And, like, yeah. you know, I don't know if we were unfree, but we certainly were free. You know, right, <laughs> you know right. like, psychically, even when we had, like, food and drink and what, you know, like, those sort of things. Yeah. I also think that, like, like you go to have you been to high school recently? To high school, yeah, yeah. yeah. You go to high school. I see kids like I see the way they show up in the world. And I'm mm-hmm. like, we could never like that. Just wasn't even like right 
possible. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's, that's like, exciting though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think it's beautiful. Yeah. That I think that names the thing that I've been trying to that I've been wrestling with is that I've never felt that I had that psychic freedom. You know, it, life has felt like for many, like so many of us, like being on a tightrope. I think Eric's his name is Eric. Right? Eric, yeah. His character reminds me of it in some ways. Two things. One is like part of what it means to be marginalized, right? Is that you grow up on the margin. Yeah. And part of growing up on the margin is that on the margin you're often unheard and unseen. Mm-hmm. So you get people who like suddenly get heard and seen for the first time and they get like addicted to being heard and seen more than they get addicted to anything else, right? Because like you just you haven't it's one of the sort of interesting caveats about whiteness too, is that you rarely see white people, especially white men, like fight to be heard or whatever, because they're always like there's an expectation of being heard. Yeah. Whereas like that is not most people call it like expectation. At right? all. Yeah. The second thing, part of, too, what it means to grow up in a marginalized community is that you start to understand the constraints as a matter of survival, right? Mm-hmm. So when you're poor, you know how long $20 can go because, like, you have to. It's actually interesting when you talk to the people who study wealth mm-hmm. is that they always talk about this notion that, like, finan- like poor people don't need to go to financial literacy mm-hmm. classes. Like, it's not helpful because poor people actually know how to manage their money better than anybody else because they have to, right? Absolutely. And that's, like, that is, like, a understanding the constraints because you've had to. Yeah. It's also this thing is that when you grow up, you have to, like, unlearn the constraints a little bit because, yeah. like, you have just learned them so well as a matter of survival. Survival. Totally. So, like, you uh, you can over-index on the constraints and, like, you actually forgot to imagine, right? Because, like, imagination doesn't happen in a space where, like, the constraints are so present, you know? Yes, preach. And it's like, how do we... It's why I love this mango season thing. <laughs> uh, mango season, everybody. It's in the middle of the middle of the film. But, yeah, like, how do we actually, like, name the constraints and move them out of the way so that we can imagine again and, like, imagine and ask the biggest question and, like, mm-hmm. do the biggest thing and dream the biggest, you know, like, which is in some ways, like, the what, what would it mean to have our own league? And, like, yeah. what would it, like how do we even put those things out as, like, valid and real things? It's, mm-hmm. it's like, what whiteness actually always does is, like, it always operates at the most extreme, right? It always asks the biggest question yeah. because, like, the constraints are always mythical, right? Like, yep. the constraints are always these things that can be fudged mm-hmm. and, in blackness, like the constraints are always like life and death, Fixed. right? Like yeah. they like feel permanent even when we, so when we say the system is broken and people say, oh no, it was designed to be that way. Like my takeaway is that it was designed, right? Mm-hmm. Somebody made this up and like yep. because people made it up, we can make something better, you know? Yeah, 100%. As we come to the end, two questions. Yeah. One is, uh, there are a lot of people who would say that they've like done it all. They've like protested, they've called, they've emailed, they supported the arts, they like did it, whatever, and like nothing has changed. Mm-hmm. What would you say to those people? People <laughs> losing hope. Oh man. I don't think there's room to lose hope. I don't think we have that. I mean it's what you just said, right? The constraints. I mean the constraints are are, are real and like we don't have the luxury to imagine them not being there. So I think that we have to continue to call and protest and write and support the arts and all of the above. I don't think there's. I don't think there's time to be no ways tired. He says something. Nah, uh, country is a haystack. Yeah, country is a haystack. And last question is, and this is one I ask everybody because I'm always fascinated. What is a piece of advice that you've gotten that stuck with you? Hmm. Gotten a lot of advice over the years. My mother. What did she call you? Well, she, when I was growing up, I always loved. She would call me buddy. Really? Yeah, I've never said that out loud. But she, she, I've never even told her that, but she sometimes say, you know, you want to go ride with me, buddy? And I just love when she would say that. Anyway, it makes me a little choked up even thinking about it. But my mother taught me not to ever take no for an answer. She taught me to be, you know, courageous and bold and to keep pushing no matter what. Error correction is something that I've, I've you know, learned along the way that it's okay to make mistakes as long as you don't continue to make the same mistake over and over again. And I say, you know, this is not so much advice as it is like uh, a bit of a salve for me. August Wilson says in, in Fences, you got to take the crookeds with the straights. And I always like that. To me, it just says that um, the universe has a way of balancing itself. You know, we have a way of balancing ourselves. And I think there's something about grace in there, too, about having grace in the face of uh, of difficulty. Yeah, it feels good to 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 sort of hold and sit with. Honored to have you on the pod. Uh, Everybody go see High Flying Bird. I try not to put any spoilers in here. It's an honor to talk with you. I'm a big fan of what you're doing. I thank you for your work, brother, and and thank you for having me on. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. 
Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night. No matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale, even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.